I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I mean to plant a flag in the sand for conscious, willful people to gather, organize, empathize, and capsize the established order of things. Our opposition? Team Machine, Team Capitalism, Team Algorithm, Team No Team, I'm my own team. Being human is a team sport, so thanks for playing. Playing for Team Human today, designer and technology historian and author of the new book, Architectural Intelligence, Carnegie Mellon professor Molly Steenson. Likewise, if designers and architects don't know how to work with artificial intelligence in some way, even to begin to frame the questions or to look at what's possible or to push what's possible or to restrain what's possible, constrain it, we're in trouble. Molly, who's worked on projects from Burning Man to Netscape, is going to help us understand how to approach information as architecture and architecture as information. This is not a simulation. This is designer reality. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. So I'm on my way to do a talk in Pennsylvania, for educators who are struggling to make the argument to their university administrations that the liberal arts and humanities still matter in a 21st century dominated by digital technology and job recruiters and employment needs and production slowdowns and students who want to get a four-year education in order to get mostly a leg up on the employment ladder. And it shouldn't be such a hard argument to make if people remember what education was actually for, in public education in particular. You know, 
public education got invented really as a way to improve the quality of life of workers, of coal miners. The the wealthy and the the government looked at the lives in the UK and in in uh, in Europe of the working class and thought wouldn't it be nice if after spending a day mining a, in a cave if the worker could come home and read a great novel and appreciate it you know understand art have a adventures of the mind, you know, not really just as a, uh, not as a soma, you know, not as just a way to keep the masses from revolting, but compensating workers for their hard work and giving them a decent quality of life, a full human experience. And as nations became democratic, it became even more important that you would educate people so that they could participate mindfully and reasonably in the democratic process. If people have no education, then um, they could be swayed by a tyrant, and democracy really can't work unless people could read a newspaper and be basically informed on the issues. But over the last century, and certainly the last few decades, the purpose of education seems to have reversed. I guess it's partly that the economy got got more complicated and uh, jobs became uh, more difficult to train workers for. So corporations really started to think about education as a way to get trained workers. And schools were thinking of education as a way to get their students better jobs. The high school degree and better the college degree is a way to get a better job than you'd get without them. But the problem is then that education stopped being understood as compensation for work and started to be understood more as an extension of work. Corporations came and helped well-meaning school administrators with their curriculums so that the curriculums would match the needs, the hiring needs, of these companies. And they thought of it as this great thing. Well, great, you know, so our students will graduate and they'll be able to get a better job. But what they forgot in the process was that that wasn't the point, that corporations can train their workers. Corporations can teach workers what they need to know to run Excel spreadsheets or run a particular machine or do, you know, a tool and die or whatever they might want to be doing. The education system was to make for better humans. But when we're thinking about it in these very utilitarian terms, then of course STEM education would start to trump uh, the humanities or liberal arts. STEM being uh, you know, technology and and uh, engineering kinds of uh, subjects, and that's because we think, oh, we're moving into a digital age, so we want our kids to learn technology, so they can then become uh, programmers or data entry people. Humanities gets included to the extent that we can prove that humanities has a value to those processes. And there's a few books that are even out now that say, oh, well, look, you know, with a humanities education, someone's going to be a better programmer, a better engineer, a better CEO, a better financial administrator. Those humanities are good because they can help people think dimensionally or metaphorically, and it's going to serve them in the workplace. But 
the point of the humanities is not that it has this side effect of making you a better worker. The point of humanities is that it can help us train people to be more critical of this very system to which we're submitting. Neil Postman, one of my friends and mentors, used to say that that teaching is a subversive activity. And he didn't mean it like it's communist or something. He meant that if you're teaching, what you're doing is enabling your students to see through the mythologies around them, to explore and challenge the assumptions underlying all of the things that we're doing. And this is that deeper purpose of a liberal arts education is to train people to think critically, to be able to pause and reflect and say, hey, wait a minute, what just happened to college? What just happened to high school? Why have they been applied towards corporatism and away from humanism? There was a great philosopher and cultural theorist and economist in the 1930s and 40s, named Horkheimer. And he wrote a book called The Eclipse of Reason. I think I've spoken about it before. And in that book, he talks about there being two different kinds of reason. There's reason with a capital R, which is the big reasons you do things. And then there's reason with a small r, which is the more immediate purpose that you do something. So one, the, the big reason is like the big values, the kind of platonic ideals underlying a subject or a pursuit. And the little r reason are the more utilitarian values, the what do you get out of it, what you're going to lay more pipe or make more money, that you do something in order to get this other thing immediately. If we think that humans are more than robots, then education and capital R education should be appealing less to our utility value as workers than our, dare I say it, sacred value as humans. And being educated, doing liberal arts is the process of mining for those anomalies, mining for what is it that makes us different than machines? What makes us weird? What is art? What is ambiguity? Humanity, being human, is having the ability to sustain that ambiguity, to live in those ambivalent liminal spaces. That's what makes us human. And that's why we have to preserve the notion that education is more than training workers how to do stuff. It's training humans how to be more deeply human. My name is Damian Williams, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Suzanne Sloman, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Eleanor Seta, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Francis Morlapay, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Arya Sirius, a.k.a. Ken Goffman, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guest today, author of Architectural Intelligence, Professor Molly Steenson. The last time I think I saw you live in person was when you were at South by Southwest Mm -hmm. doing that talk about Netflix where you used a metaphor or an analogy that I 
still used today about how the way Netflix uses uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning to um, put together a show like um, uh, House of Cards and how it was analogous to like the creation of cheese doodles. (laughs) (laughs) And awesome mouthfeel. Yeah, exactly. An awesome mouthfeel constructed by by machine with ultimately no staying with no nutritional value, you know, yeah. the way that kind of flows right through you. I mean, it's an interesting starting point for a discussion about design and architecture and artificial intelligence. I mean, we're, that the drive to design in that way, I mean, comes from where? Is it just the market? You know, I think that's a good question. I mean, part of it seems like it comes from wanting to take data and make exactly what the market wants. So you do the research, um, you crunch the data, and you realize that the perfect Venn diagram involves um, a political thriller, Americans, at that time maybe Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright Penn. And um, you put these things together, put it in Washington, D.C. instead of, say, Los Angeles, and boom, you've got the perfect show. You've got the cheese doodles. (laughs) Right. You watch that show and you don't actually feel like there's a human on the other side of it in a weird way. You know what I mean? It's not like James Joyce communicating his confusion about reality to his reader or Samuel Beckett, you know, sharing his existential dismay. When you watch or read something by one of those people, you can feel the human soul driving the text forward. It's true. I mean, it's also funny because Ulysses was dictated. I I learned this Mm. recently, which if you think of James Joyce being dictated, it explains so much (laughs) in so many weird ways. But um, I... I am fascinated by these questions of the weirdness around AI and what kind of in turn makes us human. So if you consider the idea of the uncanny valley, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the uncanny valley is um, Masahiro Mori's concept from 1970 that um, when robots are too similar to us, they freak us out. And um, he even goes into this this breakdown of the kinds of eeriness. Like there's the kind of eeriness we feel when we are around corpses or people from other cultures. That's one kind of eeriness he outlines. And um, and the reason that we don't like these this kind of eeriness is it, it seems threatening to us. It makes us feel gross. It makes us feel weird. And so that's the uncanny valley. And mostly we use that as a way to not design robots that are too similar to people, too humanoid. Um, But he points out in in this article that he wrote where he coined that term that they help us to understand how we are human. So I think that there's something with House of Cards or neural nets in general, like neural nets used for humorous purposes that make us understand the thing that we're playing with and understand ourselves and understand senses of humor. And I think they can be subversive in some really important ways. So this is something that I've been talking about lately, but I haven't actually written anything about yet. I did do a uh, – there's a whole chapter in the upcoming Team Human book about mm. the uncanny valley and about kind of pushing through the uncanny to get to awe, which I feel like is the real beautiful sort of human – you know, the awe that you experience looking over the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. There's an uncanniness to it, but but it's not that edge scary thing. It kind of pushes through to something else that feels mm-hmm. uh, 
grounding on a certain level or, or rehumanizing. It's who we are, right? It's us against something else, against scope and scale and imagination that you can't, you can't otherwise comprehend. And I don't know that neural nets will make me feel that kind of awe um, uh-huh. that the Grand Canyon does, maybe symphonies. But um, mm. but one of the things that I that I think about is, I mean, nothing like the the kinds of examples and playful things that Janelle Shane comes up with are like feeding 7,000 paint formulas for um, interior house paints and um, their titles to a neural net and seeing what titles, <laughs> colors it comes up with. And, you know, turdly and burble simp and stoner blue. <laughs> and they're awesome. They're awesome. Um, or coming up with guinea pig names. She used a data set from the Portland guinea pig rescue or whatever it is. And as, as my husband has pointed out, any kid can come up with Princess Pow, but it takes a neural net to come up with Hanger Dan. And these are both <laughs> names they come up with. Um, she's got D&D characters, you know, marketing your own talk, uh, your own self-improvement talk, your, oh gosh, what else? Pokemon characters, recipes. I mean, they're hilarious and they reduce me to tears. I, if I'm having a bad day, it'll make my day instantly better. Mm. And it's fun though. Because it also, it sort of helps build a little bit of immunity or cultural resistance to what's going on all around us. You know, it, it, I feel it's in some ways like therapy for people who are living in an over-designed or, you know, over-informationally architected reality. Well, it also makes me think of things like Dadaism or absurdism, right? So mm-hmm. in, in the period of time that Dadaism emerges, it's the period of time it's the same period of time as world war one and the world is going to hell and art is going to hell with it. And so Dadaism is a way to respond. And so Kurzschwitters is doing his tone poems and Marcel Duchamp drops off the urinal in 1917 at the Paris art show. And this is the response when the world is going to hell, you respond in your poetry and your art and your performances in an according manner to show how strange and uncanny and weird it is. And Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a reason that this is coming up now. If you look at Dadaism, it's 1914, really to 1918, 1919. And if you look at absurdism, it's in the wake of totalitarianism. So you have Mm -hmm. someone like Eugene Ionesco writing the play Rhinoceros in 1959. And um, everyone in a, a small town is going to turn into a rhinoceros, you know, bit by bit, everyone, everyone kind of follows suit, turns into a rhinoceros. And maybe this is our way of turning into rhinoceroses too, or at least having, having a foil for it. I mean, it's funny when you talk about the uncanny Valley, it's actually a good pivot to, uh, to your current book, which, uh, you know, is playing on the relationship of artificial intelligence and architecture. And, but, uh, what I thought about was, you know, my recent experience walking around in that giant underground complex that they built where, you know, 9-11 happened at the World Trade right. Center. Just like you're walking in this like whale intestinal structure thing. And I couldn't help but feel as I moved through it, this was designed by a computer. It feels mm-hmm. like I'm walking through some kind of a CAD CAM simulation thing that it wasn't sort of wrought by the human mind or the human hand. And it made me feel alienated from from where I was. 
Now, mm-hmm. is that a version of the Uncanny Valley? I wonder if it is. So it's the parametricized algorithmic generated form, right? A human mm-hmm. works with an algorithm in order to generate novel forms, an architect does, designers do. And um, what results is something that a human could not design on her own, right? Mm. It's just not something that humans could do. And that an engineer can't an engineer can't build on her own, right? Mm-hmm. But it's still a human creation. I think one of the interesting things in the book is the question of algorithms that help us design things that mess things up, you know, that that mm-hmm. that aren't exactly our bidding and that feel like they're designed by something other than a human or a computer, but something that is kind of different than the sum of the parts. Right. I, I mean- it's, it's, I almost want to be, I want to try to be disciplined in how I talk about this. You do something really important right near the beginning of the book where you kind of explain that this relationship of computers and architecture goes in both directions. There were the, there were the early days of computers and interfaces where we started to think about it as information architecture, that mm-hmm. that these are spaces, virtual spaces that we're inhabiting. I mean, Brenda Laurel, I liked her her metaphor better, computers as theater, because I like, mm-hmm. you know, the screen is the proscenium arch and you move through it. But it's also an architectural understanding of, mm-hmm. of these spaces. But then from the other direction, the idea that architecture is a digital uh, a digital practice mm-hmm. and that architecture, like the one I'm describing, that these are sort of computer simulations that are now assembled. You know, they're almost 3D printed into into reality. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess, which which way did this this exploration start for you? More in the AI or the, the information architecture world or more looking at the real world influenced by digital? Both. Um, so parts of it go back 20 years this week, 22 years this week. I started at Netscape mm-hmm. and um, I was and working- You made the search page for them from you know, what, what I know I of your history. I did. I did. I managed, I was the producer for search and directory and people in yellow pages and something called destinations. And mm-hmm. that meant that in 1996, it was the second most hit page on the internet only after the Netscape homepage. So- um, it's kind of terrifying to think of 24-year-old me whose previous job had been like two years prior working in a record store. Uh, that's what I was doing. Um, but the first day of work, Hugh Dubberly, who is a designer now uh, in San Francisco, suggested that we use pattern languages, which is an idea from Christopher Alexander, to um, think through the redesign of the Netscape website. And I had done a lot of work in architectural history as an undergrad, and I thought, well, this is weird. We're talking about an architect. Why are we talking about an architect? So that's one way. And the other thing I'm struck by is how many digital people turn to architectural metaphors to talk about what it is they do. Information architects have a very real sense of what they do as a form of architecture. It's a form of architecture that differs completely from the understanding of architecture that trained architects have. They see their their worlds very differently. But they have the idea that this is what they're doing, that that's what it is to do this kind of structuring and um, this kind of working with uh, very complex environments. And so my interest in it came from this mix of both. Um, 
And in fact, it's so much so the interest that after being a digital person and early web person, which is how you and I first met, Mm -hmm. you know, web 0.0, 1.0, and being a design professor, that I went to do a PhD in architecture in order to try and figure this out from the angle of architecture and the physical world to what we mean digitally when we speak of architecture. Um, You asked me about the AI part, and that happened along the way. I started out looking at the history of cybernetics and architecture in the mid, starting in about the mid 2000s. So that's when I was beginning to do that research and looking at cybernetics between, you know, mostly in the 60s and 70s. And along the way, I discovered that Christopher Alexander, um, the architect I mentioned just a moment ago, in a footnote in one of his books mentioned artificial intelligence. And I was like, well, that's different because we're talking about information and feedback and open systems and closed systems and cybernetics, but we're not talking about AI. I wonder what's going on there. And that was in 2007 that I started wondering that. And the rest is the focus of the research that I've been doing for the last 11 years. And when you study it, though, I mean, what you do that that feels different is, one of the things you do that feels different is you keep retrieving the kind of the physical archaeologies that are the precursors to what we're looking at now. So if we're trying to understand the real quality of, say, networks right. and how they work. I mean, when we're when you're researching that, you end up coming back with a study of the pneumatic tube system in Paris of the early 1900s. The tubes I mean, are so cool. <laughs> aren't they, though? Yeah, pneumatic, they're so I remember my dad. They had them at Mount Sinai Hospital where my dad worked. I yep. didn't realize they could go through a whole city. Yeah. What do you need postal carriers for if you can have tubes go everywhere? Well, the reason you needed them is you could send a telegram instantly, but there was a labor problem in getting it transcribed and a labor problem in terms of delivering it. It's a last mile problem. So Mm -hmm. instead they put the pneumatic tube systems between all of the uh, post offices. And in a hospital, there are still pneumatic tube systems because you can't digitize medication and tissue. Yet. Yet. (laughs) Blockchain. (laughs) Blockchain. 3D printers in every patient's room. They're going to come up with some massively inefficient (laughs) solution for this. (laughs) But those things, they they worked. They were going throughout. There was, I forgot how many, like you said, like 400 kilometers of tubes in Paris, something like that. 450 kilometers of pneumatic tubes uh, in 1945 in Paris at its height. Um, yeah, because the the first pneumatic tube lines always go between the bank and or the stock exchange and the central bank because mm-hmm. you need to get that information as uh, quickly as you can back and forth. Today, we see high-frequency trading um, relying upon minuscule distances in um, data centers and in carrier hotels, right? right. Well, 1880s style, you need to do the same thing in order to have a market advantage. And so that's the physicality of that communication, right? And the physicality Mm -hmm. of the finance. Right. I mean, and that's the thing. That's where, you know, Negroponte, who you write a lot about, I mean, on some level, 
the initial distinction that he got famous for, which is, well, there's, you know, atoms and there's bits yep. and never the tween shall meet. In a way, you're, I don't mean undermining it in some mean way, but in a way you're saying, no, 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 you know, bits are atoms and atoms are bits. But you know, you know I, he gets that. I think that he, he makes that distinction, but he's an architect above all. Um, uh-huh. And he still comes back to it as a way that he sees the world. He has a master's in architecture. And mm-hmm. granted, he never worked as an architect, but it still structures how um, how he sees the world in, in various ways. And he understands, I think, that you can't virtualize everything. And when he was running the architecture machine group, which is the predecessor to the media lab, it's why mm-hmm. tinkering and what he calls bricolage was so important, right? This idea that you need to get your hands on the technology, you have to build it, you have to mess with it, you have to understand what it does. You have to demo it. Of course, there's a fair bit of hand-waving going on in the demos. You mm-hmm. have to make enough magic stagecraft in order for the idea to be really real. But yeah, you still have to get your hands on the stuff. So yeah, it's atoms and bits. And uh, the bits matter a great deal. But I kind of secretly, I suspect that he understands that the atoms do too. Right. But you can't really have one without, I mean, I suppose you could have bits without atoms, but you wouldn't be able to share them with anybody. Yeah, Yeah, you can't. Yeah, you're right. You can't. And that's actually like someone like... uh, Catherine Hales has written about that. She points mm-hmm. out that all information has to be uh, instantiated. It's got to be carried somehow by something. Um, and Paul Durish's recent book, um, The Stuff of Bits, is all about that, all about the materiality of this digital stuff. You know, what's what's physical about it? Right. Because I feel like if we ignore that, like ignoring the physicality of digital to me feels like ignoring the externalities of capitalism Bingo. in business. Yep. You know, so where are the servers? Where are they getting their energy? Where are the computers going after they're being used? What landfill, you know, what little kids are being sent into caves to get the molybdenum for your, you know, <laughs> smartphone? <laughs> yeah. You know, that there is the physical world supporting the digital one. Yep, exactly. And um, I think it's vital to understand that that's the case. So this is part of why it's important to talk about design and architecture when Mm -hmm. you're talking about AI, because design and architecture is where it meets the road. It's where it meets the world. It's where we interact with it. It's where we have the interfaces. And if we leave it to engineers and the crafters of algorithms to... um, design how it fits into the world, it's going to be like a bunch of bloated photocopiers or a bunch of really, really bad cliches. And likewise, if designers and architects don't know how to work with artificial intelligence in some way, even to begin to frame the questions or to look at what's possible or to push what's possible or to restrain what's possible, constrain it, Mm -hmm. we're in trouble. If they can't do that, if they can't see different AI paradigms as material for design. Right. I mean, so let's look at both of these problems. I mean, the cliche one we can start to see almost everywhere, even in the, the, you know, the new Star Wars movies or science fiction films that come out where you see, you know, directors who've just watched a bunch of Spielberg and Lucas end up going, oh, let's do one of those scenes where this happens or one of those scenes where that happens, that there isn't that sense of 
they're they're no longer the source of creative output, but you know they 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 they've gotten so mechanical about this that they're just sort of spitting out. It's almost you know human creator as as AI. Mm-hmm. The the falling into cliche or even the the house of cards problem that we were talking about before that they're using past data to assemble a future, but it's based on what's already happened. Yep. No. So. So that means you would believe that there is some kind of novelty that happens from people that doesn't happen from our programs necessarily. Absolutely. Um, I, I like the ideas of programs helping us to better understand each other. And I think the idea of humans understanding what technology does and doesn't do, there's, you know, there's... This question of literacy, right? We we talk about media literacy, media fluency. Mm-hmm. I taught a, a course previous to um, being at Carnegie Mellon. I was a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And for a few years, I taught a course I loved called Media Fluency for the Digital Age. Mm-hmm. And there's a question of what media fluency is. We talk about it as though if we could just somehow get people to understand what literacy or or to to achieve literacy or fluency, maybe it would be okay. But I think there's there's some other kind of engagement that has to happen to make this, I don't know, to make this okay, to make people really truly understand what's at stake, what's possible, what we're looking at here. One of the reasons that I dig into the history of AI and design and architecture is because we actually started formulating these ideas back in the 50s, if not earlier. You know, we started using the term artificial intelligence in 1955. That's a long time ago. Mm. And um, the kind of general framework that we use to um, differentiate AI and many of its research um, areas, that was defined in 1956. And so, you know, on one hand, we can look at this stuff as being very, very new and you know, in those ways, it seems out of reach and very sci-fi to an everyday person. But I think it's important to understand that these ideas have been around for quite some time and that there are ways that an everyday person can kind of slow it down to at least understand the big ideas behind it. Right. You know, in, in, the, in the book, you talk about, and I don't know if it's as much one verse as the other, but I mean, I'll, I'll frame it as that, sort of the, the Xerox Park version uh, or vision of uh, technology design versus IBMs. Right. You know, and you're explaining that Xerox Park sort of saw information architecture. You know, that's sort of the way they understood it. But IBM had this sort of more of a, a, what you called a, the, the logical information management, mm-hmm. but then sort of these physical objects that are designed by people like Eames come in and make the mm-hmm. nice curved electric typewriter. So, I mean, could you, I guess, sort of help us understand these two approaches to technology and how sort of which one or how they were reconciled? You know, both of them had to do with different ideas of what an information environment was. So on one hand, it could mean um, the the example of um, Xerox and the architecture of information. That's the president of Xerox coined that term in 1970 when he announced Xerox Park, when he announced mm-hmm. that that was going to be created. And, and for people who don't know, Xerox Park is where, you know, the 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 thing that we now think of as the computer interface, the, all the windows and stuff mm-hmm. was designed. I mean, mm-hmm. 
poor Xerox that they figured it out and now they're bankrupt, but yeah. still. <laughs> and the photocopier, but they understood all of those machines that they were going to design, photocopiers and, and whatever else were going to be in the business of managing an architecture of information. And I think that IBM understood the role of design, you know, whether industrial design or media design uh, in kind of a total information environment. There's a historian named, an art historian named John Harwood, who writes really beautifully about this in a book called The Interface. He he talks about the role of Elliot Noyes, the um, consultant designer for IBM, in designing these different devices and showrooms and, you know, the media environments at the World's Fair and uh, these collaborations with Ray and Charles Eames and just the importance that that put in place. And you can even look today at IBM saying things like a few years ago, they wanted to hire a thousand UX designers and the role of design in their story, their contemporary story. It'll be interesting to see what happens there, but I think they still understand it in those terms. Right. I mean, partly what happened is IBM became so uncool. You know, they became just these <laughs> kind of technology <laughs> consultants. And then I saw, I mean, I know like three different guys that were hired by, and guys, yes, um, by IBM over the last five years. And it's, you know, those those sort of 30-something, 40-something guys who wear the really bright sneakers and stuff. <laughs> the plaid shirts, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sort of, you know, Williamsburg neon something. Uh, it, but it's a particular, as if what the IBM is trying to do is like, they realize, oh my gosh, we got to get some cool designy people back in here because, you know, we've turned gray again. We've turned, we, we've lost touch with, uh, you know, the form factor of, of what we do. <laughs> And it's I like I like the fact the form factor of what we do you know the form factor of everything um, uh-huh. right um, and what that factor means totally. But it was IBM that that had that quote from your book that that the object of the game is what is to quote extend man's control over his environment. Yep, yep. That's that got spooky for me though. <laughs> you know, was it because it seemed like if you think that. That's what they were doing around 1956 onward. And, right. and then they didn't know. Yeah. Well, There's but, spiders and things out there that they're afraid of. Oh, totally. But then like Marshall <laughs> McLuhan is talking about prosthetics and information. And um, I think that it was in the air. You know, the people designing the pneumatic tube systems were not talking about man's control over the environment. Although they were the guy who designed um some of the, the the post offices in Paris at, at that time, the central post office in Paris, described what he did as the architecture of the future. So he was actually 100% right, I think. Mm. But, but it makes me wonder if everyone's always been trying to reach out and do that and uh, extend control over the environment in whatever way. It is creepy. But yeah. what does it say well, about yeah. Yeah, but it's not so bad. I mean, I just saw 2001 again because it's yeah. we're at the 50th anniversary. And they have all these scenes at the beginning where the kind of monkey people yeah. are just trying to survive. And there's this one scene where they're sitting on the edge of this little like cliff cave thing at night. And they don't have fire or anything. They're in night, like in the rain. And they hear this like some lion thing growling. And you just see them sitting awake, their eyes wide open all night while this growling thing is wandering around and they're just hoping it's not going to jump on them. You know, so of course that initiated a quest 
for safety. Let's get up in the trees. Let's get houses. Let's get insulation. Yep. Let's get weapons. Why not? It's just when do you stop? You know, when, and, <laughs> what's safe and, enough? <laughs> but or where when do you stop? You know, like there's the external stuff, right? You're in the tree. You got the weapons. You you're throwing you're throwing the club in the air and then, you know, it's, it's outer space. Um, it's the space prosthetic, but then it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and faster and faster. And so fast that you can't understand it. And then so fast that there isn't a material presence to announce it. So again, like who, who can play with algorithms? Not most people, right? Mm. Um, and it's interesting that 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 leap motif that you're talking about from the movie, you know, that that the monkey throws the bone up in the air, the bone turns into the spaceship. Once you zoom in, the next thing that you see spinning that same way is a pen. Mm -hmm. It's this floating pen. And so it's as if it is miniaturizing or becoming now, you know, it goes from technology more to language and propaganda and code even. Yep. Yep. Totally. And I'm finding myself sitting, I'm talking to you from my office at Carnegie Mellon, and I'm thinking Walter Ong and the idea of, you know, the pre, mm -hmm. the, the pre writing, I'm sorry, it's been years since I read him, but the oral traditions and what that meant and what it meant when you started being able to think of a pen or literacy or code or something beyond. It's weird. You know, I know you're at Carnegie Mellon now, and I know you were at at University of Wisconsin at Madison before. Now, to me, as kind of a theater type person, I think about getting to a place like University of Wisconsin at Madison, whatever, I couldn't leave once I'm there because it's <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? It's so pretty and they got the theater department and the poetry mm -hmm. people and Robert McChesney and all that. And so it's real sort of as I I mean, I understand it from the outside. It feels like this sort of liberal arts, intellectual, slightly psychedelic lefty college town place. And then you go to Carnegie Mellon, which feels, I mean, it's elite, but like engineers and hardcore, rigorous, like Python programmer stuff. I mean, you kind of, it's interesting. It's like, I feel like people like us, if I'm allowed to say that have to decide whether we want to be kind of the nerd among artists or the artist among nerds. <laughs> can I be, can I be both or can I, can there be a third way? Yeah, there can be, there can be, but I haven't found it yet. Um, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like I'm a nerd whisperer. I think that that's what I feel like, right? Or nerd interpreter. <laughs> Molly right. Wright-Steenson, comma, nerd interpreter, nerd whisperer. But, <laughs> but, you know, the thing about this school that I'm at now is we've got, th thinking of the School of Drama, for instance, it's one of the best in, in the country, right, in the that's world. that's true, in the world, yeah. And, um, and I'm, I'm a professor in the School of Design, affiliated with architecture. Both are just great programs. And, yeah, across campus is where some of the very best research in machine learning and robotics in the world goes on. Um, I live a half mile from the National Robotics Engineering Center, and I live a mile away from Uber's ATG, which is, you know, until recently, several times a day, I'd be passed by self-driving vehicles. It's just yeah. what's around here. And I know, like, you do find yourself on a campus like this or being someone like you or me, where we, we find ourselves in the middle between technology and art and culture and media. And, um, and media, I think, is one approach, one way to kind of understand this. And um, we don't really have a media studies, media theory department here. It can kind of cut through 
a number of different things, but that's one way, right? But I kind of feel like being the interpreter or the the whisperer or something mm-hmm. um, might be the role that that I'm ending up playing or that you're ending up playing or that um, Team Humans listeners are ending up playing because we care about both and we care about the tech because we care about the people and the world we live in. I can't see the two as separate. Um, I just want to be right. And you're also, you're also a writer. I mean, so when you look and you say, when I look back at your achievements, and maybe it's because I'm, I'm looking for artifacts and such. I mean, I see, well, wow, you wrote the statement that Burning Man still uses on the website <laughs> to say, you know, it's titled "What Is Burning Man," and you know, and it was very interesting. The form you chose to tell that is almost like a hypnotic incantation. You know, you're saying you arrive at Burning Man, you are a participant, you are this, you leave it the way you found it, you do this, as if almost like the question and answer is filled in, is in there for you. It's just, it's explaining these are the expectations that are going to be on you. This is the way you're going to do it. And no, there is no other choice. You're coming and you're participating. You know, you're, uh, it was, it was an interesting way of, of doing it. It was super friendly, of course, and, and open and embracing, but it was, uh, you don't usually see things written in the Second person present tense. Yeah. <laughs> and I wrote that in 1997 or 98. That mm-hmm. that piece of writing is old enough to drink. Um, <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. So is Burning Man. Yeah, yeah. that's just yeah, and then some. Um, but it's funny that that piece of writing, that that what is Burning Man was actually the what is Burning Man page until maybe a decade ago eight years ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. It has been spoofed by people. That was how I knew that it had arrived, that someone could make fun. <laughs> yes. <Yep>. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's it was, I was really involved with the Burning Man organization um, on the web team in those early years. And so I got involved with writing and I don't even remember why I did that, but, but yeah, it was asked to or it was needed. And so I produced it and it's- But it's interesting, around. when you look at the- th- the things that you were involved in. So, you know, you did the zine Maxi, which was an on, one of the first online zines. Yeah, it was you know, a and- pop culture feminist webzine that I co-founded with Janelle Brown, Rosemary Pepper, and Heather Irwin. And Rosemary, uh, Heather, and Janelle uh, all at various points worked at Wired. Um, right. And Janelle later at Salon. Uh, Heather went on to Chick Click. Um, yeah, it's... It was a wonderful um, and now completely almost missing from the internet um, webzine that existed from 97 to 99. But it was, a, I mean, the the internet did seem to open up uh, more opportunities for women and feminism and guerrilla feminism, you know, that you couldn't really see in mainstream media. That's right. It was... It was a different internet then. I think a lot of us who were around then have that feeling now. Um, And we had a sense of if we built it, it would be successful. So 21 years ago on April 2nd, we launched it and it was instantly successful. Mm. Um, It was by that, by that token, it became red. We, uh, we did a lot of press about it. It turned on a lot of writers. It was something that other people wanted to work with. 
some people wrote about us in dissertations. That was, we were really excited about that because none of us had gone to grad school. I think. Right. But it also pushed, it it, it launched the, the, the sensibility that got carried on by, you know, Georgia Rucker and Jezebel and uh, uh, Wanquette even, and everything else that followed. You know, I feel like this, these early few, and not that yours was the only one, but uh, sort of the migration of the the physical girl zine into the internet space, yep. you know, pushed it way beyond the the zine rack at Tower Records, you know, into popular culture in a different way, and was you know just as responsible for you know modern feminism as any of the theory and and activism that went on before it. Totally, um, we were we were third wave feminists, and we understood what mm-hmm. that meant. And thinking about that, <laughs> but as opposed to being a third wave feminist who doesn't understand right. what that means, right? I guess, but um, but we were we were specific about how we were different from second wave feminists, and um, mm-hmm. at the same time, uh, I think our our tagline was pro woman post girl g r r l. We knew that we weren't riot girl. We were all working you know, nascent tech jobs, right? Mm-hmm. And um, if you think about the the materiality of what we did, we weren't producing physical zines, but we had access to computers, server space, and people who could, when we had technical questions that we weren't able to solve on our own, we had good friends who were able to help. People who are still our good friends today, actually, interestingly enough. So, you know, some friends hosted us, a couple different people were our sysadmin, a couple people made scripts for us um, that did various things on the site that uh, powered our community. We also started a web ring, if you remember what those were. Right. And mm-hmm. it was called Estronet. And we really were. Ex- <laughs> Don't you love these names? They're just so. so Perfect. And Estronet had Bust, Girl, um, Hughes, Wench. Uh, Wench was Katerina Fake and Leanne Waldahl. Uh-huh. Uh, let's see. Bust is the bust that we know and love today. Yeah. Uh, Hughes was Ophira, um, Tali and Ophira Edut, who are now the Astro Twins. They're as- astrologers. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, we were a ring of, we felt we were well-designed websites. Um, I look back and I'm not so sure that was the case, but we felt we had a design sensibility to what we did. Um, and then Heidi Swanson founded Chick Click and she had the right. backing of Chris Anderson. Um, we were just a web ring. So we gave Estronet to Chick Click and it grew to the point that Chick Click's parent company, Snowball, went public in 2000 mm. and Chick Click sponsored the Lilith Fair. <laughs> right. <laughs> this stuff got about as big as it could have gotten on its own at that time. Uh, and we shut down Maxi in 1999 uh, to carry on other mm. projects. And just in time. <laughs> and then you also, I mean, before, I guess it was in when, 1997 or 8 that you were, you were like the first employee at, at Electric Mines? Um, 1996. Yeah, you know, Howard Reingold was a guest and when we did our live show in uh, uh, in San Francisco, awesome. it was great to see him come out. But um, we didn't even talk about Electric Minds, which was really an effort to, you know, build a BBS sort of like the well, but better yep. and more intentional. With his favorite, his favorite topics and, you know, the things that wouldn't leave him alone. Right. But in the end, I guess, 
what Electric Minds fell victim to what? Um, so I, I will tell you that I left Electric Minds um, before its long before its launch. I was there for a few months, and I don't think I was mm. mature enough to be working at a startup. I was like 23, 24. Working with Electric Minds was a fascinating, a fascinating thing. And watching them launch, they launched, I want to say, like November 8th, 1998 at 11.08 a.m. or something. And uh-huh. not very long after, there, you know, there were a lot of internet crashes along the way that we forget about that were a lot smaller Mm. in the late 90s and early 2000s um, before the big crashes came. And there were crashes in early 98. And so I think they had issues with funding. And actually what was most interesting about how they shut down was there were three parties. I think they were acquired by Durand. And I don't remember what it was, but there were three parties in the acquisition, Electric Mines, Durand, and the electric mines community. So something that didn't exist previously, previously to electric mines, came together on that platform and became a party in the acquisition. And I thought that was brilliant in terms of talking about mm. what online community really could be um, and what it was right. to connect socially, that the that the community would realize itself in that manner. It's interesting when you talk about the crashes. Um, I, I keep wondering myself how brittle is the internet now? How brittle is the digital economy now compared to then? You know, the the net could crash back then. I mean, the, it could just stop and no one would have connectivity on one coast or the other or both or all our data and something would be lost. And, you know, when banks and stock markets and real businesses started to come online onto the regular internet, when they didn't bother to go build a secure internet or something. They just used our internet for really important stuff. Not just, you know, I'm not just going to lose my chess game or the brilliant conversation I was having with Howard Rheingold. You know, people are going to lose the the economy or yeah. something. I mean, <laughs> do you feel like the, the, the net, the sort of the digital infrastructure is... Uh, do we have a false sense of security on how well this stuff actually works? Could it just break? Um, It could get tinkered with. Did you see the news (laughs) headlines this morning about, you know, Russia maybe infiltrating home networks and, you know, cyber attacks imminent? Yeah. Tear off my airport or something. Well, yeah, is you know, it too there's late? that, and I got I got a letter in the mail today from Delta Uh-oh. Airlines telling me their chatbot got <laughs> hacked, and that means my credit cards might be in their chatbot for some oh my reason. God. <laughs> Go get all my things and get clear ID. Get something I forgot what to. You know, and I'm supposed to then what? Get a free credit checking service, which likely was itself hacked at right. one time. Or and has not been honest with the- with how much was hacked or when you were hacked. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, you know, right. Donald Trump hires the fixer and that's turned into his main vulnerability now is the evidence the fixer has. Totally. And that that probably bears out in all kinds of ways. Or all those blockchain bros in Puerto Rico with the dumpy mm-hmm. poop pants and uh, God knows what they're doing. But, um, you know, if you think about it, one of the things that, that you could question thinking about the question of um, – you know, is the internet safe? But the other question I'd have is about crashes are how are we defining success? Because 
if what success is, is a successful exit in terms of VC or, you know, 10x plus valuation um, within a short period of time, what are the goals of that company going to be? And how are you going to achieve them? And whose needs are they serving? Are they going to serve an everyday person? Are they going to be, you know, useful or productive for for me, you, my mom, my students, or is it all about running fast and breaking things to use that, you know, often repeated mm-hmm. cliche? One reason I like history, again, is when Elon Musk says that um, we're in a new era of artificial intelligence, I want to tell him that that era began, you know, in the 1950s, if not earlier. And we've been at this for a long time. And actually getting it done is really hard. The reason that he wants to say that is to corner a market, just like what anybody wants to right. do. And, and here you've got – exactly. And here you have a kid who didn't really even understand the internet when he launched his Facebook yeah. app or platform or whatever you want to call it. It got out of control and did all this stuff he didn't anticipate. And now he wants to take a technology like AI, which we all understand even less about. And we we, we have even less of a sense of what the unintended consequences of deploying this stuff would be. And let's just use that to filter, you know, Facebook, because I can't depend on the, the human users to flag everything that's gone wrong. You know, it's a, a such a blind leading the blind you know, let's throw this piece of tech at it uh, approach that I, I'm just amazed that people aren't more concerned about a sort of an un, a guy who doesn't even know what the total information <laughs> awareness uh, plan of John yeah. Poindexter was, unless he's pre- pretending not to know. A guy who doesn't even know that, who was raised, you know, it's, who is so young that 2003 is before his historical yeah. memory. Um and we're going to trust him to build the machine learning infrastructure of our our social and political infrastructure? It's a little frightening, isn't it? Beg some questions. Yeah. Well, to me anyway, but I get afraid. I mean, are you I, afraid? You, you <laughs> sound so happy. <laughs> oh, no. I wear black on the outside because black is how I feel on the inside. No. Um, <laughs> uh, I... Oh, gosh, I am a cynical optimist. I guess I am just real Gen X in in that kind of sense. So, okay, here's 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 something that I find myself doing. I am teaching two different studio design classes this semester. I'm teaching all of Carnegie Mellon School of Design's seniors, and I'm teaching a class in service design. So service design is designing, you know, Lyft or Uber instead of uh, a Subaru, right? Um, The whole system. And my students increasingly want to have an AI system where they, you know, they'll say, oh, you know, machine learning will do this. And they... I think I've found the way to get them to understand how they're talking about it. Because when they say that they're going to just put it in the cloud or AI will do this, it's like, okay, you mean magic fairy dust? Magic fairy uh-huh. dust. Okay, so so who are these fairies? And I've had I've gone back and forth with this student I like quite a bit. And he's like, are you just going to always push back if I say machine learning? And I, I said, no, I'm not going to push back unless you can tell me, or I am going to push back until you tell me who's producing the machine learning, what it's doing, what it's not doing. Um, you know, what is it doing that is different than a search algorithm? What is it doing different than X, Y, Z? Or if you're going to store it in the cloud, that's great. 
How are you going to pay for that? What does it cost? Um, because I think it's way too easy for people to just say it's AI or it's machine learning or it's some big concept beyond what they understand. And blockchain, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But if they start <laughs> throwing a word, dig yeah. into it and figure out, okay, so what does it mean for machine learning? Okay, I'm interested in incorporating machine learning in a music service I'm developing. Well, who else is doing that? And how might that be done? And who would I have to partner with? Or who would I have to hire? If I can get designers to start answering those kinds of questions for themselves, then maybe they start to develop some literacy or fluency about what it means to design for those technologies. And then when they leave here and, you know, a couple of weeks or a year or two and go work somewhere, I hope they'll be better positioned to understand questions to ask when they're inside of the companies they're going to be working for. Right. I mean, you're asking them to approach artificial intelligence from the perspective of a designer or even of a historian. You know, where where have we seen this before? You know, so then if you are you know, using if you're retrieving the lessons right. of the pneumatic tube system when you're designing a network, you know, or the Constitution when you're designing yeah. an artificial intelligence, um, all of a sudden, you know, you're informed by you're informed by history rather than, I mean, I don't know, I guess just informed by you know trying to get famous before and and get your money out of there before they figure out there's nothing We're under trying it. to pay your student loans, which is a, you know, a pretty real thing that I think all of our students are facing. Like I just have got to get out of here and get right. myself established, or I need a work permit for the U S so I can stick around where I've lived for the last six years, all of which are pretty human considerations. But my hope is that at least in the kinds of things I research or teach or write, my hope is at least I can get other people to turn things upside down and be critical about them to figure out what they're made of and figure out how they fit into your own world. Right. And even if they're, you know, in their entry level design job and don't have the authority to, you know, turn the company around or to design the thing the way they want to, at least they could be more conscious of what they're doing, you know, or in a meeting, at least try to lean the company or their next you know, they're, they're superior, uh, uh, lean them a little bit more towards developing technology in the, in the service of humanity yeah. rather than. And understand uh, what those markets market. are. A lot of students have never been critical about this stuff. They've never thought about where it came from. It's always been here. Um, you know, it's, I'm, I'm 46 right now. And this, this has been a very interesting time to come of age because my, you know, my adulthood, I, when I turned 18, um, I was writing letters and placing expensive phone calls. And when I was, you know, a few years later, I guess, what, four years later, the internet is there and the web. And now, you know, the social media stuff that I was doing with Howard Rheingold and at Netscape in the mid nineties and on Maxi is what we all do to exist. Right. So they've grown up without those shifts. Their shifts are like the iPhone happened and that was major, or I got to use Facebook um, and that was major. So I want them to start being critical and at least ask the questions. Maybe it doesn't change anything, but at least they know where they stand. And from there, they can make a, a principled approach to how they want to carry things out. Yeah. And I have a lot more hope 
for this generation than than I did recently. You know, back in the 90s, I was writing books like Playing the Future about screenagers who are digital natives and will understand this stuff better and, you know, turn it on the corporate powers and, you know, didn't really see that for the longest time. I just saw kind of valley girl kids talking <laughs> about trying to get famous on Facebook. But, you know, but when you hear the kids from Parkland or other social movements talking now, you realize, oh my gosh, there are articulate social media users out there who understand the biases of these of these technologies and landscapes and you know really do want to flip the yep. flip the script. And it's it's really, really deeply meaningful. And I think that it's going to change society. I think it's going to change where we're at. Um, I am incredibly hopeful in a way that I haven't felt since Trump was elected. You know, maybe something will really, really happen that actually changes the balance of power. Um, and I think that's kind of what we need. Maybe it's the true promise of a digital native is, is using it differently for power rather than playing into someone else's power. Right. And using it, you know, to, to, you know, reify, reinforce um, real world events. You know, what people remember about these kids is being outside, yep. singing a song, standing in solidarity. You know, so they're using technology as a lever, you know, to affect real world change rather than as, you know, the right. change in itself. Or being silent uh, in front of a crowd. You know, one of the most potent moments was 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 yeah. precisely that. Um, and it's interesting when I think of Generation Like, the um, the piece you produced for Frontline, then they, I still am teaching with that piece, particularly with the work around the audience and Oliver Luckett, mm. who I is connected to other people I know through a group of friends that I'm a part of. And I find myself thinking... Um, I have a student right now who's who's going to work on a master's thesis project around what is identity when we are or what is meta identity when it's completely determined by things that are not us. And he's interested in Hume's notions of identity and the kind of containers that we are depending on what container we are in at a at a given point. And I find that maybe this who we are and our idea of identity is really kind of dark these days. Um, that maybe it isn't something that we actually control or have control over. Um, that it has really gone off the rails and may not be getting back on the rails. Well, it's a lot easier to find your identity when you're with another person. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's true. At least it starts it. You know, it's super hard to get your identity when you're sitting alone, interacting with you know half humans and 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 two thirds AIs. You know, but then you you know if you consider it, is it possible that a conversational user interface or that some kind of technology might be able to interact with us in surprising novel ways? So in the book, I write about um, people like Gordon Pask, who worked right. with the architect Cedric Price, and. And uh, John Fraser and their ideas that any half-decent system should kick you back. And um, Negroponte's uptake of ideas, you know, from 10, 20 years prior that um, we should build these worlds that are, I think he says, unimaginably oppressive and unbelievably exciting in order to better understand them. Um, 
and maybe it's that working with these computers and these systems, it's not just that we produce something that's different, um, that's better, but that it's different and that it helps us to understand who we are. Not replace, but understand. And we've always been doing that. We've done that through writing. We do that through letters. We do that through literature. We do that through performance. Mm-hmm. Is there a way that we can understand them in that sense? Can they make us be more us? Can we use them for those purposes, especially when that's not how they're designed? Is there something subversive that we can do? Like, how can we turn the apple cart upside down? Right. And I think we can. I think that's that's just it. You know, that that even Jaron Lanier used to talk about it, that he wasn't worried about people getting lost in simulations of reality because he thought the better the simulation gets, the better we'll be able to distinguish between simulation and what real is, you know, we'll be able to celebrate reality even more, uh, you know, because of its difference from this, from this fake thing. Yep. Well, cool. It's great to have you get to have an excuse to speak with you. I'm, I don't know if I'm filled with optimism, but I'm definitely (laughs) filled with light for, for having interacted with you. You've been on Team Human, our guest today, author of Architectural Intelligence, Professor Molly Steenson. You can find out more about Molly's work at girlwonder.com. We'll be back in the basement media squad at Queens College Laboratory for Digital Humanism next week with more of humanity's strange and wonderful efforts at evolution. We are entirely worker and listener supported. You can join the team by subscribing at Patreon. You can also help the show by reviewing Team Human on iTunes. We put a link in the episode description in your podcast player. We're also broadcasting on a few college and community stations. If you want us on yours, please email stephen at teamhuman.fm. That's stephen with a ph at teamhuman.fm. This show is, after all, produced and engineered by Stephen Bartolome. This is Team Human our last best hope for peace. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.